Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Hello, my name's Neil Selwyn and in this episode we're talking with the psychologist Rebecca Colley from the University of New South Wales in Sydney. Rebecca's research focuses on the social and emotional development of students and teachers in schools, everything from how students learn to interact with others through to how teachers find ways of coping with stress. This is a booming area of educational psychology and research that's directly related to better classroom outcomes. So I started by asking Rebecca to explain to me, as a non-psychologist, a couple of basic definitions and some examples of what drives her research interests in social and emotional factors. researcher I'm interested in looking at a variety of factors that you know help students to succeed in school and in life and we know that daily life requires that students interact with others and that's what um, that is helped by social and emotional development we also know that students have to navigate their emotions and so that is helped by their social and emotional development and so it's kind of this broad idea but what it refers to are things like students self-beliefs their motivations, their behaviours, their skills, their values, their knowledge in relation to the social and emotional side of things. And so that's what social and emotional development is. It's about this growth and change in terms of our social and emotional skills, capacities, behaviours and things like that. I mean, these are all things that are incredibly difficult to articulate and reflect upon as an adult. Uh, So in terms of working with children in this area, I mean, how easy is it actually to to research these issues? Yeah, look, you know, it's, it's something that developmental psychologists have looked at for a long time in terms of what ages do we see certain skills come about. So we know, you know, for example, that children, young children are are very confident in their abilities. But as they enter school, they get less confident. So, you know, young children will say, I'm the best runner in the world. But then when they enter school, they'll see other kids and they'll go, I'm not very good. And so we do have this good idea about when these milestones occur. We have a very good idea about these different milestones. But what I'm really interested in the work that I'm doing is looking at this in the school context and also looking at what I would I call underlying drivers. And so we know a lot about the behaviours. For example, there's a lot of uh, research looking at social and emotional behaviours in the classroom. Are students displaying cooperative behaviour? Are they displaying uh, social responsibility, for example? But what I'm also doing in my research is looking at what motivates those behaviours. Because after all, uh, a student might know how to go up and introduce themselves to someone new, but whether or not they do that depends on their motivation. And so that's something that I've been looking at. And so in terms of understanding motivation, I mean, theory-wise then, I mean, who are you drawing upon to actually kind of understand these, as you say, these drivers and these these motivators? So the main theory that I use in this research is self-determination theory. And so self-determination theory has been developed over decades. There's 40 plus years worth of research to support it. And it's a complex theory, but it's got some core ideas that are really relevant to social and emotional development. And one of those ideas is uh, basic psychological needs. And so in self-determination theory, there's, it, there's considered to be three basic psychological needs that help us to thrive within a context. And so they are autonomy, competence and relatedness. 
And autonomy refers to our sense that we're the driver of our actions, that we have choice and control in what we do. And so it's different from independence. Independence is how we typically talk about when we, when we use the word autonomy in our regular conversations. But in psychology, it refers to our, the fact that we feel that we're determining our own actions. Competence refers to our perceptions that we're effective in our interactions. Uh, and relatedness is our sense that we care for and that we're cared for by important others. And so what self-determination theory tells us is that when we experience autonomy, competence and relatedness within a context, that's associated with greater motivation, greater well-being, uh, and more adaptive behaviours. Now, most of the research in the education area has looked at academic outcomes, so focusing on things like academic motivation, academic engagement, and achievement. And so what I've been doing in some of my research is, is drawing these ideas over to the social and emotional sides and trying to understand how do these basic psychological needs provoke promote things like pro-social motivation and then in turn students to actually enact pro-social behaviors and that's that so that's a major theory that I use. Yeah I'm really interested in your work on how students enact pro-social behaviors in the classroom in particular the influence that students behaviors have on teachers and so just to kind of flip it to, to the teachers for a second we hear a lot about teachers impacting on students and less so on students impacting on teachers. So, I mean, in what ways and in what extent are you finding students impacting on teachers' working lives and teachers' own socio-emotional well-being? Yeah, look, it's, you know, there's definitely a symbiosis in the classroom. Teachers impact students and students impact teachers. But you're right, most of what we think about is how teachers are impacting students. Now, some of the work that my colleagues and I have done is have looked at factors uh, that uh, related to students and how they impact teachers. And one of the major factors that we look at is teachers' teacher-student relationships. And so we know that relationships with students are a major reason for why teachers enter the profession, and they're a major reason for why teachers stay in the profession. Um, and our research shows that when teachers uh, have more, you know, positive relationships with their students. This is associated with greater well-being, greater motivation and greater commitment to, to their job. So, it, you know, students do impact teachers. There is this, you know, symbiosis between teachers and students within the classroom. And also this idea of disruptive behaviour as well. I know you've studied the effect of students' disruptive behaviour and disengagement on teachers. I mean, what are you finding there? So disruptive behaviour, you know, we, we're talking about things like calling out, being noisy, disturbing other students. And this is stressful for teachers because it, it impacts their ability to successfully undertake their work. It can mean that valuable learning time is wasted. It can mean that students are concentrating. And so what we've found in some of our research is that disruptive uh, student behaviour is linked with some negative outcomes for teachers. And one, one study that we looked at, we found that schools where there's more disruptive behaviour uh, and that's reported by teachers. So teachers' perceptions of students' disruptive behaviour is linked with lower teacher instructional adaptability, and that's reported by students. So students rated their teachers on the extent to which they can change things up in, in a lesson if students aren't understanding, for example. And so we saw that more disruptive behaviour is linked with lower instructional adaptability. And what we, what we think in terms of why this possibly occurred is that when teachers are dealing with disruptive behaviour in the classroom, they're adapting in many, many ways. So it might be saying, uh, you know, so-and-so, you actually need to move and sit somewhere else because you're not concentrating. It might be uh, shifting the focus of the lesson. It might be stopping an activity because no one's engaged. And so teachers are adapting all the time. 
But in doing that, in focusing on the adaptability for classroom management, that can leave less time for focusing on what needs to be done in terms of instruction uh, and the lesson for adaptability. And so that's, you know, possibly one reason. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, one thing that I guess most people agree on in terms of disruptive behaviour is this, how it leads to kind of um, teachers feeling kind of burnt out and stressed and increasing kind of disharmony in the classroom. And you've done a lot of research and on this idea of teachers leaving the profession, teachers being burnt out, worn out. I mean, what are you finding there? So we know that teacher attrition and burnout is a big issue in Australia, but also across the globe. The teaching profession has changed over the past few decades. It's become more complex. There's more compliance, there's more accountability. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but when it doesn't come with more time for teachers to you know, undertake those tasks, it's it means the demands of teaching have increased. And so we see that there are, yeah, these high rates of burnout and attrition. Now, you know, looking at teacher workload and how we can reduce those is something that's really important uh, for government to, to do. And fortunately, there is some attention to this, um, but more needs to be done. In my research, we've also looked at some personal factors, so some individual factors and some school factors that can help teachers, you know, to experience greater well-being and, and avoid burnout. And so one uh, factor, one factor that we found consistently that's really important is relationships. And so, you know, teaching is relational in nature. It's, it, it, it involves interacting with people, students, colleagues, school leaders. And what we find is that when teachers have, you know, a good sense of relatedness, when they have social support, that helps to stave off burnout. It helps to increase their well-being. It's just so important. And you work on this concept of workplace buoyancy as well, which I found really interesting, taking a more positive kind of flipping the script on, on the whole idea of teacher stress. I mean, what is the concept of workplace buoyancy and, and how does that help us make sense of, of teachers and, and the workplace? So workplace buoyancy uh, stemmed from work that my colleague and collaborator at UNSW, Andrew Martin, uh, has conducted among secondary students. And so since then, Andrew and I have uh, extrapolated or adapted it to look at wor um, workplace buoyancy among teachers. And I should say that among students, it's called academic buoyancy. Um, and what workplace buoyancy looks at is the capacity or our capacity to effectively navigate common challenges, common adversities uh, at work. Things like you know, navigating com competing deadlines, uh, navigating a high workload, navigating disruptive student behaviour. So they're common challenges that a person experiences at work. And what we find is that uh, when teachers uh, have, you know, a greater capacity for workplace buoyancy, it's associated with positive outcomes. Now, from a sociological point of view, this seems very kind of individualised. I mean, is there a danger here that by kind of focusing on issues like workplace buoyancy, it's a kind of individual problem and it's also an individual kind of way of solving the problem? I mean, is, is there a danger we place too much onus on the individual and not the system? Look, I definitely agree with you. I think we do not want to be blaming the individual. We do not want to be saying, you just need to be tougher. You just need to toughen up. No, we don't want to say that at all. We want to be looking at the system as well. Um, but I guess the difference between sociologists and psychologists is that we prioritise or put, you know, a major focus on the individual, whereas I'm, I think sociologists would put the major focus on uh, the collective or the system. Now, that's not to say that we don't value looking at the system or the collective. Uh, for example, in most of my research, I will look at school supports that play a role in supporting these personal capacities. So, 
uh, you know, in our buoyancy research, what we've looked at is um, a factor called autonomy supportive leadership. And so that gets into teachers' perceptions of their, the school leaders and how they are supportive of teachers. And it includes things like school leaders are providing input in decision-making or when that's not possible, providing a rationale for why tasks need to be done. It involves really listening to teachers' perspectives and asking them questions. And so when teachers perceive their school leaders to provide this type of support, they typically report higher buoyancy. So I agree, it's really important to consider the system and the role it plays. But again, comes back to this idea of boosting autonomy and, as you said, the stuff you were talking about at the beginning. Now, I wanted to talk to you about a recent piece of research you did in ARA Open, which is a very prestigious journal, so congratulations on getting in there. But also, you were looking at COVID and teachers. Now, I mean, first off, COVID was a crazy time to be kind of quickly coming up with research studies that would actually be of use. And you got your survey out to teachers in May 2020, a few weeks into the lockdown. I mean, first of all, just from a practical sense, how did you swing this research into action? I mean, a lot of people were finding it really tough just to read a paper at that point, let alone write a whole paper and do a study. You know, it's really funny that you asked that question because I thought the same thing a few weeks ago when I was looking at the dates. I was like, it was March when we went into lockdown. How did, how did I manage this? But, you know, there were a few things that helped First of all, uh, my university had extra ethics approval rounds for COVID research, so that's helped to speed things up. And I was already planning a study, so I just adapted it and ran it earlier than I was planning to. So, you know, there were a few little things that really helped, but yes, I agree. It was a crazy time. Things were changing so rapidly. Things were moving so quickly. But it was important for us to carry on doing research. I mean, what were you looking at? What did you do? What did you find? So in that study, so that study used a couple of the variables that I've mentioned uh, the, the the central variable was workplace buoyancy. And so what I wanted to see was the role of workplace buoyancy during this upheaval. And so the data were collected in May 2020, as you said, and that was was right at the end of the first lockdown. And that's, a, I mean, there's a lot of adversity and challenge in that. Just, you know, suddenly moving to online, having to, you know, supervise children with different learning needs online, all of that was a huge challenge. And I wanted to see if workplace buoyancy helped teachers through that challenging time. And so that was the central variable. And then what I looked at was some outcomes, three outcomes, in fact. And the first was physical symptoms. So I got teachers to report on their experience of things like headaches, migraines, fatigue, dizziness, joint pain, backache, common symptoms that are that they're collectively called somatic burden. And so that was one of the outcomes. Uh, then there was stress, so teachers' experiences of stress. And then the last one was emotional exhaustion. And so emotional exhaustion is uh, the, one of the three components of burnout. It's actually considered the, the major component of burnout. And it refers to our sense that we're emotionally drained at work. And so what the study showed was that workplace buoyancy was associated with lower levels of those three outcomes. Um, and so that was really good to see. What was also interesting about that study is that I did look at this idea of autonomy supportive leadership practices. And so when teachers felt that their school leaders were more empowering, this was associated with greater buoyancy and in turn lower levels of those outcomes. And then I also looked at the opposite of autonomy supportive leadership. And so that's controlling leadership. That's when school leaders are demanding, inflexible, using, you know, words like you must rather than, you know, giving teachers choice and, and having a stay. And that was associated with greater emotional exhaustion. And that makes sense. So if, you're, if your school leaders are 
quite controlling or pressuring in their leadership practices, then it makes sense that teachers felt more drained during this upheaval that was early COVID. And it really was an upheaval as well, a kind of emergency remote schooling. So, I mean, I mean, looking back, how useful do you think all this COVID research is? I mean, was it just a moment in time or was it kind of a breaching experiment where it actually kind of getting school out of the classroom was actually probably more revealing than, than we thought? Yeah, look, I think that remains to be seen. Um, I do think it's really important, though, because disruptions occur, maybe not at the scale that we are experiencing, but they do occur. So in 2020, there were huge bushfires in New South Wales and school, some schools were burnt, you know, were burnt and students had to move to a new location or had to do remote schooling. And so, you know, there are disruptions that occur to parts of the population and knowing and having this research means that we may be better prepared in the future to support students and teachers. I think it's also important too to look at the after effects so, you know, we, I collected that data at the beginning of COVID. We were all probably running on adrenaline then, which, you know, gives us superhuman strength to get through. But after a year, and, you know, particularly for teachers in Victoria of long lo- that long lockdown, um, I mean, you know, adrenaline can only help you for so long. And so then we get this, this you know, interesting idea of what happens in the longer term and research from other disruptions have shown that yeah burnout actually uh, you know spikes a couple of years after these big events so you know looking at at these types of disruptions and then seeing the long-term after effects is really important well these are topics that are not going to go out of fashion quickly so i think you've got a whole career ahead of you doing this so it's fantastic well thanks ever so much for taking the time to talk it's been really interesting to hear about your research and, and good luck with the rest of it thanks for having me to chat